Dead Pilot Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host of Dead Pilot Society. Hey, we have another live stream show uh, this Saturday at 4 o'clock Pacific. 7 o'clock Eastern. That's this Saturday, June 20th. The first one went surprisingly well. Um, For those of you who are there, for those of you who missed it, I personally was amazed at how well this works on Zoom. So we're doing it again. Our dead pilot is from Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the co-creator and co-showrunner of One Day at a Time on Netflix. You know, there's so much going on in the world right now, and we debated whether to go ahead with the show, but we decided... You know, we have a script by Gloria, who's one of the most important voices in television right now. And we have a great cast and everyone could use a little, a few laughs and we're going to do it. Um, so you'll need to buy a ticket to watch. But A, tickets are only six fifty, And B, all of the money we raise is going to go to the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. So uh, if you need more convincing, here is our cast. Taryn Killam from Single Parents and Saturday Night Live. Tyler Ritter from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the McCarthys. Todd Grinnell from One Day at a Time. Anna Villafanier from New Amsterdam. Victor Rasek from Fifty Shades Freed, Godzilla, Lords of Dogtown. Emily Chang from The Vampire Diaries and The Bold Type. And Caitlin McGee from Bluff City Law and Modern Love. So come on, come on. Spend some time with us this Saturday, June 20th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Go to houseseats.live to get your tickets. That's houseseats.live to get your tickets. Only $6.50 for a good cause. Uh, It's going to be fun. Okay, so this month, uh, instead of bringing you a dead pilot, I thought I would do something that felt a little more appropriate, a little more meaningful uh, for the moment that we are in. So, here is my conversation with two very smart, talented, and funny writers, Allison Faust and Matthew Claybrooks, after a brief message. Hey, I'm Janet Farney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, oh, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment and confusion we're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place but enjoy adulthood i guess the truth is it was both so join me on the jv club podcast where i invite some great friends like Kristen bell angela kinsey oscar nunez neil patrick harris and keegan michael key to talk about high school the good the bad and everything in between my teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage the jv club find it on maximum fun Okay, I'm here with Matt Claybrooks and Allison Faust. Um, Matt, I almost came close to having one of your pilots on Dead Pilot Society. We were so close. It was one of the next ones we were going to do, and then you had to go and sell that pilot and make it no longer a dead pilot. Um, so. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Um, 
I mean, literally three years being dead three years and really being pissed about it, bummed about it, thinking it was so great. Cast is great. And then um, I get a call and say, hey, Quibi wants to do this thing. So I was excited. I mean, I wanted to do the Dan Pilots thing because I thought maybe, hey, if people hear this thing, maybe we can get some drum up some interest that way because I never I don't know about you guys, but when you sell something or you create something, I never think I never think the nail is in the coffin ever. I think it can be revived or I mean, I maybe I'm naive, but I always feel like it can come back. Um, and that's that was my goal was hopefully it would come back. But, you know, it came back without without even doing anything. Maybe maybe all it took was us asking you if we could do it. It was, just, it was just that. <laughs> Thanks for the mojo. Yeah. And Allison, you have a pilot that I would love to do, but there are some talent issues with the uh, piece of talent that you wrote that pilot for, if you know what I'm talking about. But so haven't been able to uh, have you guys so far do a script for Dead Pilot Society, but at least we get to uh, have a little, have this little chat. Um, so maybe a way to start because I feel like both of you guys have really interesting stories about how you broke in. Um, and uh, I'm sure you've told those stories a million times, but our listeners haven't heard them. So uh, let's, Allison, why don't you talk about how you got started writing in TV? Okay, well, I kind of fell into it. I used to listen to this radio station, 92.3 The Beat, with John London and the House Parties. They have a morning show where they did sketches as I drove to my job at Cal State Long Beach. And one day out of the blue, I faxed them a sketch and they called me. They said, listen, we never hire outside writers, but we'll pay you freelance to do this. So I was like, great. So I did it about a month. I made like 50 bucks a sketch and thought I made it. And um, Keenan Ivory Wayans called the radio show and asked who wrote one of my sketches. They told him. I went to meet his executive producer who told me, okay, we want bumpers, monologue, this, that. I said, okay, what's a bumper? I had no idea. I had no TV experience at all. So I wrote what I thought she needed. Everything was on the left-hand margin. I didn't know what I was doing. Faxed it to her. A week later, she called me on a Saturday and said, come in. I was like, okay. So I went in and it was all men. And I sat around with them because I have a bunch of guy cousins. So it was no big thing. So we basically just shot the shit until Keenan came in the room and I thought, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. But he saw me and he walked around and introduced himself to me. And I was like, okay, for one, I thought he was gorgeous. And then <laughs> we sat around what I came to find was the writer's table and the guys were pitching. I thought they were just telling funny stories. So when it was funny, I laughed. <clears throat> when it wasn't, I didn't. So as it came around to me, I I thought, I can't do that in front of Mr. Living Color. You know, I can't read one of my sketches. So I slid it down the table and I said, this one's funny. And the guy sucked in their breath like, oh, she is dead in the water. And Keenan, to his credit, took the sketch, took his time, read it and said, you're right. It is funny. And he called on the next guy who stood up like he was in a Broadway play and pitched his sketch. And something told me that can't be right. And when the meeting was over, Keenan came to me and shook my hand and said, welcome to the team. And the line producer came and sat me down. He said, um, okay, so this is what you'll be making a week. It was WGA minimum, 
but it was more that I made at Cal State Long Beach in a month. So like the top of my head blew off. I thought he made a mistake, but I wasn't going to correct him. He said it again. I left the meeting. I had a desk and a computer. And I called my mother and told her what happened. And she said, Allison, what does he expect you to do for that kind of money? I said, Mama, let's be honest. For that kind of money, ain't too much I won't do. And that was basically it. It was trial by fire. I was in the business on a nightly TV show. So it's it's one of the greatest, it's one of the most amazing breaking in show business stories that I've heard. Um, and then just throw out a few credits uh, that you've had since, since that time. Oh, since then, we went straight to Scary Movie. There was Wife and Kids. Um, I've done like half a dozen Bring It On and uh, movies like that. Uh, Everybody Hates Chris. God, it's hard to go back in my own resume. I forget. I've been doing this since 97. So it's like um, I did your show all about the Washingtons, uh, the cool kids. I don't know. A lot. Scary movie wanted to. Uh, yeah, I said that. It's, it's just been a good career. I can't lie. I've had a lot of fun. You know, um, the majority of the stuff I've worked on. <laughs> but we'll get we'll get to the fun ones and the not so fun ones. All right, Matt, I, I gave you a hard act to follow, but uh, you did. You did. But I, I'll start off with Allison and I have so many things in common. She should be my sister. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, we're both from Compton. Both love basketball. Both writers. Both black, obviously. Both got afros. <laughs> both worked on Everybody Hates Chris. Both. I went to Cal State Long Beach. She worked at Cal State Long Beach. I'm working with a couple of Wayans now. She worked with Damon, the guru. And I'm sure there's other stuff. We both like the same barbecue guy, too. He's from Compton, too. Anyway, <laughs> so we, we have a lot in common. And, we've, and, and we worked on your show together, uh, All About the Washington. So... Literally, like, I don't think I have more in common with a human on, on the planet more than Alice. <laughs> um, but how I started was a bunch of starts and stops. Um, literally, after college, I raised uh, $20,000. I shot a feature for $20,000. We shot in Vegas and L.A., and um, Spike Lee got behind it after he saw it. I thought, okay, I'm going to be one of these guys that make it really young. <laughs> it didn't happen. Um, Spike took the film around. We couldn't get uh, distribution, blah, blah, blah. I'm substitute teaching. So um, a friend of mine is working on Girlfriends. He's a PA, another one of the PAs. He starts his own company. It's a catering company. And he says, hey, man, I got a job for you. And I'm like, I'll take anything, even if it's free. So I start working on Girlfriends as a production office PA. They moved me to the writer's room the next, I mean, the writer's office the next year. Didn't really have any openings or anything as writer. So Everybody Hates Chris came to the lot. And because I was on the Paramount Studio lot, I had the, you know, heads up of what bungalow they were in. So I found out that they just moved in, hadn't unpacked. I went over to the bungalow. Ali Leroy was there. Reggie Hudlin was there. Um, and this guy named Jim Michaels, who's a producer. 
And I was like, guys, I have to work on this show. I love Chris Rock. He's my idol. And they were just like, how'd you know we were here? And I said, have you guys eaten anything? They said, no. I went back to the girlfriend's office, made three plates of food, brought it to those guys. They were like, okay, you're hired. I was the first <laughs> person hired on Everybody Hates Chris pilot. And um, bust my ass on the pilot, bust my ass as a PA the first year of the show, Everybody Hates Chris. The cool thing about Everybody Hates Chris, as Allison knows, a bunch of stand-ups on the show, including Chris Rock. So, you know, I didn't feel like it was the hierarchy of most shows where it's like, if you're not an EP or a co-EP or something, um, they won't listen to your pitches. So. I pitched jokes and I got jokes on the show as a PA. And then that second season, Chris was like, let's give Matt a shot. And they let me be in the writer's trainee program. And I was in the room. And um, that was all she wrote. You know, that was my first first job. And it was and it was on a show with somebody because I do stand up as well with one of my idols, um, Chris Rock. And since then, you know, um, developed a really good relationship with Chris and I consider him a brother and that's kind of how I got in. Yeah. That's a great story too. And it's, I mean, I've talked a bunch of times interviewing people, that story you told about just, um, I'm going to get you food. I'm going to just whatever your entry level job is in this business. I would say, just treat it like it's the most important job in the world. Don't ever treat it like it's beneath you or you're doing it grudgingly. You just excel at whatever that is. You take it seriously and people will notice. And I've just seen that again. Right. And Andrew, I was, and I know I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was the best PA Hollywood ever had. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I took it serious on girlfriends. I would work I mean, not getting paid because I had the key to get in. I would come on a weekend, shop on the weekends. Um, my fruit bowl was the best fruit bowl you've ever seen in your life. Colorful, fresh, every, every day, every morning. Um, I, the, the radius of the places I went to lunch, I was able to expand because I was able to figure out how to get to restaurants faster and how to keep the food hot. So... The four ways. Same 20 <laughs> places. I went to 40 places, which made the writers happy. I gave them the menus the day before instead of the morning of. So when the, the late writer that comes in and slows the whole lunch process down, it didn't happen. People ordered their lunch the day before. So when he when the late writer came in, the food was on the table and they were happy. Literally, I was told, like, you got the mustard right. And that's the reason why I shopped every like. Literally, no writer had another request for me. They couldn't say, oh, can you bring almond milk? Can you bring Diet Coke? They had nothing to say to me. So they would just be like awkwardly like, so what do you got going on? And then I could say, here's my script. I took that shit serious. I <laughs> marriage because of it, but I took it serious. <laughs> oh, it seems like it worked out. It worked out over time. <laughs> and, you know, I guess the other part of that equation is you had bosses who were like, Oh, we've got this great PA. Let's make sure we keep him as a PA. Cause he's so good. Yeah. They recognized and they promoted you, which is the other piece of the puzzle that you need. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't want to promote me because they didn't want to lose me as a PA. And so I had to go to another show to get that opportunity. So, you know, it's all good. It all worked out. 
And so uh, we'll start, Allison, like what's, um, what's a great experience you've had in a room? Um, and we don't have to talk, you don't have to say all about the Washingtons, but we will, we'll get to all about the Washingtons. But what's a, what's a great experience you've had in a room and what made it great? Uh, well, if I do it, I'll do it from not in the order of what's the best room, but in the order that they happen. Anytime I got to work with Don Rio, because I thought he was a very old school, you learn as you work with him, and just great attitude and still get you out of there in time to have a life. Keenan, of course, taught me a lot working with him, but um, that was a, in movies and stuff like that. Uh, Don taught me a lot about story. Um, I worked on Wanda's late night show, and coming into that room felt great because that was the first room I can remember that had more than two women. And I hadn't seen that before. And it was, it was so much so that I realized like, wow, this is different. Um, Devon Shepard had a show on BET where he just gathered a great group of writers and we had more fun writing that show than we did shooting it. And there were some things like that, that prepared me so that when his wife, Renata Shepard sold a show to TV one and she asked me to come run it, that I took a chance. I said, we had all female execs. There were black women on the show, about three black women. So I hired all black women writers and not to narrow us down, but they were all available, which I thought was remarkable because I knew them and I knew they were great. So we had a, it felt freeing at the time to just be able to talk and really talk about the stories that we wanted to do and not have somebody monitor us or pull us back on that. So that was a great experience. Um, and I mean, I, to, to be honest, luckily, I've had more good experiences than bad. I've been able to work with friends or people who became friends, you know, and we make the most of it. I mean, it's comedy. Come on. You got to fucking laugh. <laughs> you know, there have been a couple that stood out where I could have. I, I, I did not feel as comfortable, but even from those, I learned, if nothing else, what not to do. So. Like I said, I've been luckier than some, and I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> you know, it's not always easy though. Even on the good shows, even on the ones you think this is perfect, especially if you're running the show, there's always something that bumps you. And it's I don't want people to think that writing is easy because it never is. Um, but I've enjoyed meeting a lot of different people. How about you, Matt? Uh, the best show. Yeah, some good experiences. Uh, be honest with you, and I'm not just saying it, but uh, all about the Washingtons was my best experience in a room. Um, because I felt heard. I felt everybody was heard, not just because, you know, even if you're heard, if nobody else is heard, it sucks because then everybody's mad at you because you're the teacher's pet. But I felt like everybody's pitches was weighed and all taken into account and that's and i felt like the room was all people that i would hang out with and all people that i enjoyed being around so when we had to be there till 10 
or 11, which was rare. It didn't feel it just like you're you're tired a little bit, but you're not. There's a different type of exhaustion when you hate the people you're looking at. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but when you really enjoy the people, it's like it's a different thing. So it was the first room. And unfortunately, I had a lot of rooms. I mean, I, I've, I've enjoyed some other rooms because, you know, responsibility was put on me. And I like that to be like, OK, you're the funny give me this, right? you know, pitch some jokes or go start another room, you know, go in the other room and work on this stuff. I like the responsibility and the challenge, um, but it was all put together on that show for me that I felt like, okay, you can enjoy, you can enjoy the time you're there because I've been on shows where I wanted to throw up. I, I hated it. It, it, it felt bad for me. It didn't feel like it was my tribe. It felt like sometimes people were really superficial and, and it's just not me. And, um, and so to be on a show where I actually liked the people and you would go hang out and, and do lunch with them, even when you had free time, that was the first time it happened for me. You had your Frank bromance. Huh? Oh yeah, Frank. Yeah, Frank. And we're still friends to this day. <laughs> we actually talked maybe uh, two weeks ago. So he's a great guy. He's trying to get me to move to Sher Sherman Oaks, <laughs> my family. So, uh, no, it was it was great. It's like Marlena still keep it like, you know, I mean, Andrew, you send me political stuff that I look at and I'm like, yeah, we got to, you know, because I'm, I'm into that, too. So it just felt like a bunch of people that I'm probably never would have met otherwise, but I'm, I'm happy that I know, you know, yeah. it was a great, it was a great role. Well, that's, that's good to hear. That's very nice to hear. You know, that was, um, you know, in some ways, it was a little bit of a strange situation. We could get into this, you know, it's a show, you know, I don't know if everyone listening. So all about the Washington's was a show on Netflix starring, uh, the Reverend Run, Run from Run DMC, and his wife Justine playing versions of themselves, and uh, and then actors playing their kids. Family show, not a show I created, but a show I was um, brought into to run, and you know, very aware of being a white showrunner with a show with an all black cast, um, which was you know presented. Challenges and um, although it didn't really feel like that, actually, you know, um, it it you know I think my I anticipated it being stranger or whatever than it actually was. Um, but I have you know reflected back, and it's good to hear this because I don't know, you know, I know my perspective on it, but you never know whether like did I make mistakes? Did I, you know, um, I read something where people talk about black, black writers feel like they have to be like black cyclopedia or black generic or whatever. And I was just like, did you guys ever, um, you know, I, I feel like there were times where I had to defer to, to your experience, but I didn't want to ever feel like I was saying like, be, be the voice of all black people right now. Um, and just, you know, these are situations that other people are in. I don't know. I guess I'm just looking for thoughts about, like, how that situation was for you and other similar situations and what people like me need to be thinking about or hearing. Well, I'm, 
I've had it both ways where I've had to be the black person in the room and I've had to be the woman in the room. Neither one of those felt special. You know, like I, I'm not the authority of all black people are, are of all women. Um, so it's not a great position to be in. And it, you, it makes you hungry to weigh in on the other characters. And I often did just to let people know that, look, I'm, I'm not just your, um, you said black generic. And we had this talk before when you said black to this. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> but, you know, I think although, God, as, as hard as it's been, that's actually uh, perceived as progress in this industry. Because you could have a show with no black people in the room and nobody would be there to speak up. You know, and I've, I've been the person to speak up and I've been the person, well, I've always been the person to speak up. Um, but I've seen the people in the room who are like quiet, not our room, uh, other rooms, the black person in the room who are like quiet, like I'd be the black woman and there'd be a black man there and something would come up where me and Matt had it great. We could look at each other and have the conversation like, what, what was that? Did you, no, you know, go back and forth. I've been in a room uh, with a black man and I looked to him and he looked at me like, don't, don't bring me in this. Like, uh-uh, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to keep my job. And you're like, but this, <laughs> this is there's something bigger than this. They wanted to totally stay out of it. <laughs> you know, he would get smaller instead of bigger. So, and I was thinking about this the other day. I said, it would probably be nice that for every black character you had on a show, you had just as many black writers. So that one person doesn't feel that pressure because that can totally backfire on you. If you're the only black person in that room and nobody else can identify or relate to why um, a subject is problematic but you, then you become the problem. And that's not fair. That's not the, that means your day goes on a lot longer than theirs because you take that home with you and you feel it. But then if you're silent, when you know it's wrong, how do you live with yourself? You know, how do you go like, I should have said something, I should have, would have, could have, just start to pile up. So I think hopefully now, people, even if you don't agree with somebody, would be willing to listen, to hear you out. You don't have to understand. We don't come from the same place. But just, you know, I'm not here to start a problem. I just want to let you know. And like Matt said, to your credit, you let us voice those opinions. You know, it's not that easy in a, in, in a lot of realms. It's just not. You say it, they go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then it's totally ignored. And you, you get to the point where, and there have been a few rooms that I've been in like that where you go, okay, this is the last time I'm going to pitch this. <laughs> you know, or this is the last time. And you try to reason your way around it or maybe we could do this maybe and when you know straightforward is the right way because this is just dead wrong and it's not a all black people would or black people wouldn't think it's just wrong you know mine has always been in the world we live in and the time we live in or in the time that this show took place that couldn't happen as much as we want to disneyland it it can't happen that was not the world for black people you know, I remember when we were doing Everybody Hates Chris and my mother was still alive and I told her, do you remember, were you around when we had the controversy over whether people could say uh, 
nigger in Chris's neighborhood. These were the black people talking to each other. And the network had a big problem. And I think the reason we wanted to say it back then, because it was controversial on TV, and when people started saying the N-word and all this kind of thing or whatever. And it was the way we said it. It wasn't in a derogatory thing. And not everybody said it. Just the character that said it, this guy in your life would have said it, you know. And I asked my mother if she would be offended if she heard it on TV. Because I like to ask people outside of this business. And she said, not coming from that guy, you know, in life. That's the guy who said, I wouldn't say it. You know, my husband wouldn't say it. But this guy, yeah, I'd be surprised if he didn't say it. You know, so some of those cultural things, which thank God now are a lot different when I watch like Insecure and stuff and just other shows. Flex. And I'm not fighting to be able to say the N word. <laughs> I'm not doing that. It's just an example of cultural things that need to be heard. You know, well, you know it's interesting that, that you said, you know, for every black character, you should you need to have a black writer. But that doesn't work. If there's, you know, if there's one black character and one black writer, then yeah. you, the, the point is, I think what's traditionally been the case is people are like, I got a black writer. I'm good. I did it. I did, you know, but that, that one person in the room is all alone. And like you're saying, like has to worry about speaking up, has to worry about being perceived as a, as a problem. So I think that is something that maybe I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing it changing. And I'm also curious thoughts about how these like diversity programs, how you, neither of you went through those, but how you view the diversity programs and how effective those have been historically. I feel like with the diversity programs, I feel like if people just hired good writers, you wouldn't need them. Um, but because we don't, if we don't know you, the hard thing is if we don't, we don't know the showrunners. If we don't know the showrunners, you know how it is. It's such an intimate thing, especially comedy. You hire who you know, you hire who, who you can trust with comedy. And I feel like there should be like in, in, in the NFL, they have what they call the Rooney rule, which means that when they're hiring a new head coach, you have to interview, I think like three black co coach perspective coaches. You don't have to hire them. You, you just have to interview them. And I think that if people met more people that were black, they would go, Oh, this guy, this guy can do it. Let's give him a shot. But you know, it's hard. So they have to have these diversity programs to just get you in the door. But they put a thing on your back. They put a stigma on you that, oh, you were only hired because of this. No, you wouldn't have been hired if you were the best writer if, without it. But that's not how it's, you know, affirmative action, quotas. It, that's what they people would say. So it's like, I mean, I came up through, I got in through the um, writer's trainee program, which is a trainee, you know, you can hire. It typically goes to, it can go to anyone, but it goes to normally um, underrepresented, you know, women, minorities, that type of thing. And you go, you know, somebody goes to the showrunner and the show has to be on for at least one season prior. And then you can go and try to get in this program. And I think it's a great thing. And whenever I have my, my shows, I will always have a writer's trainee just because that's as many ways as people can get in. Believe it or not, just getting a PA position is hard. 
Like that's difficult. How do you get that without knowing someone? So, and that's the entry, entry level. So I just feel like if you can get in the door, you can get on the lot and you can show your personality and show what you can do and bust your ass. So people eventually at least read you, you have somewhat of a shot, but otherwise I don't know how you can get in there. I really don't. You don't speak. I mean, I, I did everything like, because I know, I mean, it's not a majority black business. I, I forced myself to love rock. <laughs> I forced myself to listen to K-Rock and, and learn bands and know music to where I can hang out with you, Andrew, or any other white guy. And we can talk about Led Zeppelin. We can talk about any of the shit you like. I forced myself to like what you like. So that wouldn't be a reason not to have me around. You know, so it's like, that's what I always tell people too, is make yourself learn about politics, learn about everything a little bit so you can talk about everything. So when when the subject comes up, you don't just go mute and become like Allison said, smaller. And then you just disappear. I I didn't want to disappear. So I like force. And then I learned this is great shit, but I wouldn't have known if I didn't like ingest it, you know, just so I can be able to relate to people more. I should point out because people are just listening to the audio that Matt is, is wearing a Nirvana shirt but he's got a poster of Tupac behind him. I'm diverse in that way. <laughs> Love both. Both amazing, great, all time, you know. But that's, I wouldn't know that if I didn't force feed myself what I thought you would want to hear. <laughs> and then I, 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 taught my, I taught myself and I learned like, oh shit, this is fucking great, you know. But I wouldn't know otherwise because it... It wasn't played by my friends growing up. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It's like, you know, we knew all the hip hop, we knew all the R&B, but if I'm going in rooms, that little thing like music will exclude you from a group or going to lunch with somebody, or it would make, it would endear you to somebody. You'd be surprised how something that little. So I just wanted to make myself diverse enough, not you know, some black people, you just selling out, brother. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm adding shit to me so I can be more relatable to people. So, you know, just do, do what you got to do. But it, it's, it's something a white writer would never have to <laughs> even think about having to do, you know, um, you know, in most cases, I mean, I guess in, with all about the Washington's, it was just, I, I could talk to Rev just because I grew up on the, you know, Run DMC and BC Boys and Public Enemy, and I still love that stuff. So that was, but that that was a bonus. It was I'm just a music lover and love all that stuff too. But you know, the thought of just like, okay, I got to study up so I'll be able to participate in these lunchtime conversations is, you know, that's kind of amazing that that you you know that that's something you had to really think about doing and and do. You should look into artists who didn't die really young by the way, you know, there's some, there, you know, there's some of those who are good too. <laughs> right. The non 27 year old, like suicide or <laughs> yeah. you know, victims, <laughs> uh, gunshot, uh, victims. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but it, it, what you bring up is, you know, we don't, you don't know the showrunners, you know, this is 
this is the tricky thing, right? I mean, I, I, again, on all about the Washingtons, um, I, when I was staffing, I was able to take the time. I met lots of people, people I didn't know, didn't know either of you guys, met you, hired you. The, 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 the room was like very, you know, so balanced, you know, in terms of women, people of color. And then we realized we needed, we were a little shorthanded. You know, we needed to hire a few more writers, but I was already in the thick of it, right? So then what happened? I hired three more white guys because I knew them. Um, and I needed people, you know, one I knew and then the other two knew that guy. And it was like, that was my network. And in the moment when I needed help and I needed to know, I didn't have time to take a real chance. You know, I had to then, and then the balance of the whole, you know, room shifted. Um, so that to me is such an example of the, the systemic, you know, the, the historical nature of this, that it's been for so long, mostly white guys. So if you've been doing this for a while and you're a showrunner, a lot of your network may be still other, other white guys. I don't, you know, it's going to take a lot of time, right, for that all to change. I mean, and I'm talking too much, but are you seeing, talk about what are you seeing that's positive that, you know, over the last 10 years or, you know, have you, are you seeing changes? Yeah, I have been doing it long enough to see some changes. And I want, I want to go back for a second when I said at least one black writer for every black character. I was being optimistic and thinking there'd be more black characters as well, <laughs> you know, so you'd be more black people in front of the camera as well. But um, yeah, I have seen the rooms changed a lot. It was crazy because it wasn't until 2016 that I had ever been in the room with a Latina woman. And we both said the same thing, like, oh, you really do exist. Like we'd never been in the room with each other. It always been an either or situation. So that was crazy. Um, and then, and since, I've been in the room with a few, but I did this freeform show, another one of Renata Shepard's shows. I think that was the most diverse room. Uh, and it was a relief because I had just come from a room that was mostly white guys. Um, and it wasn't just diverse in color or race, like sex, sexual orientation. And so the conversations were deeper and we had the experience that we, for our gay character, we had somebody who could speak for them. For a lesbian, we had somebody who could speak for them. You know, it was, it felt like a richer room. And to your point, um, she didn't know hardly any of those people. I think I was the only writer she knew. You know, she had to meet and take a chance on people. And it was at a time too where most of the people she did know were working. So I think that's what we have to do now. And I don't think it'll take a long time if we take those chances, if we hire people who are different from us, you know, who have interesting stories and are just good people that you have a good feel about, you know, because in the long run, and especially on these short order shows, somebody doesn't work out, they don't work out for 10 episodes. You know, you just don't bring them back. That would happen even if you hired your friends, they might not be a good fit. But the only way it's going to change is if we start now hiring people we're not used to sitting in rooms with. If we make our room reflect the world, you know? And I know you go all the way back to friends. I know you guys heard this a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Were there any black writers on friends? 
there were not. There were never, there never, there never was a black writer on Friends. No. I, I, I love that show, but it fucked me up when I went to New York and I saw all these black people. <laughs> if I watch Friends, or even girls for that matter, I thought, wow, Manhattan is really white. <laughs> you know? And then I went and I was like, no, they got it wrong. Black people drink coffee too. You know, so I think we have to start right away because I, and if you don't, like I said, in that free form room where it wasn't just about more black people, it was different people, but a couple of people from Africa, you know, it was just, you miss so many stories, so many stories. And it's so enriching to hear different perspectives. And I think it helps you get to a better story. And I think, it, I think it helps us as people to hear things that you don't think about. You know, I have, um, my daughter is married to a woman, you know, and I have plenty of gay friends. I know that sounds weird to say, but it's different when I sit in the room with a young gay woman, a lesbian, and they talk about their stuff growing up. What, and these aren't conversations I necessarily have with Amber. But you get to see it from a different perspective. And they, you know, they make me wonder. They make me ask, hey, is every, you know, it just clues you in on the different things. You know, how people are thinking and how they're feeling. And again, it makes your character so much richer, just having a variety in the room. Right. And, and for me, like, <clears throat> like being in the room with Allison on, on All About the Washingtons, I hate feeling like I'm the black cop. Like I have to stop anything that black people wouldn't say or do because it makes you come from a negative place. So I would always go like, I'm going to let Addison, Allison have this one. <laughs> like, so we would, we would like take turns policing. And then some of them, we would look at each other and go, let's just wait for the table read. <laughs> like, like, so, so we could never have to be the negative person or we'd be like, okay, and we can pitch on the floor, like wh whatever it is. So, and, and, and it was just, it's something you have to think about. And when, like on All About the Washingtons, um, because you had Rev Run and he's great, but he had never been in a sitcom before. So he doesn't know how the writer's room and the dynamic work. So, um, so, so he feels like there's a black guy in the room. He's always like doing this to me. Like, you got me right. You got me right. And I'm like, dude, yeah, I got you. But I'm like, I can't betray the writer's room like to have you, you know, but they don't think they think if anything gets in the script that shouldn't be in the script in their eyes being black, they think it's your fault. So they're blaming it on you. So it's like, so you have double. So at the same time, it's like, I'm not going to go and betray my showrunner, but then I hear what you're saying. So I'm going to bring it up, but I can't promise you anything. You know what I mean? And uh, so that, that's always, that's always a thing too, when you're, I've, and I've been the only black guy in a room more than one time with black actors on the cast. And it, and it always feels weird. When they like, oh man, yeah, man, you wrote that joke, right? I know you did. And I'm like, I, I can't, you know, hey, <laughs> you don't want to tell them. Because, you know, that's confidential in the writer's room. Type that's thing. the code. Yeah. 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 You're getting it from, from all sides. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, 
so let me ask this. So, so Matt, your show, Lil Kev, that you just sold to Quibi, and I, I'm trying to remember, are there any white characters in that show? Yes. Yes, there are some white characters. There's a cop or two cops. There's a teacher. Um, and then sprinkled throughout, you know, different white characters. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess the question is, um, I guess it's getting back to your point, Alison, this, this thing that's, that, that's so tricky because it shouldn't, um, it's not like you guys can't write white characters and it shouldn't, you know, and it's not like a white writer can't write black characters. So it's, um, luckily there are fewer shows like Friends these days where the cast is, is just all white, right? Um, but, you know, I guess my question is, you know, you have a show that, that had an entirely black cast. Would you feel like you need to hire white writers on that show? Right now, I probably would because I know um, a lot of funny, good writers, but I wouldn't feel like I had to, no. I feel like, you know, um, it's at a point where black people have been staying home too long and we, we deserve a little catching up. Now, I will say, I was on this one show and we were talking about an Asian character and I had to speak up. I said, I don't feel right writing this voice because we don't have her represented here. And it was sort of historical, so it felt wrong. At the least, we can bring somebody in to talk to. Um, But yeah, personally, because I know different people, I would probably have um, a white writer in the room. But given my choice right now, I try to catch up and hire some black people. Because what happens to me at this point in my career, people will come to me and say, hey, I need a a black man writer. I know a handful, which is a shame to me. I should know more. Now women, I can rattle off maybe three extra. But black men, and Matt is one of them. I just know a handful of black men and they're usually all working. Which means to me is I haven't been in the room with enough black men on those kind of shows. You know, that was earlier in my career when a black man hired me and I worked with him and black writers there. But even, you know, with Keenan, we always had white people too, because you, you just, you know. Right. You want that. You want a diversity of voices, right? <laughs> want a diverse, especially on a late night show. And even on when we were writing scary movie. You want everybody, and this is Mr. And Lemon Color, because he, so he knows about diversity. Um, but now, when I'm here, and they want to know about black men at my level, and I can't think of any because they're just, and it's hard to find. When we were trying to staff for this basketball movie uh, mo- uh, show, Dean wanted a black male in the room. We could not find one to save our lives, and we were talking about this because the show's a drama. We couldn't find any. We went on the database and everything. Um, there were dead people on there. We found a couple of dead people. But it was harder. And again, it says to me that that means there's not a lot of them brought into the industry. There's a handful. You know, and it's, I understand when people hire a black woman over a black man, they feel like it's less of a threat until they meet me. <laughs> you know? But... It's uh, it's a shame that you just can't go. Oh yeah, Larry, Charlie, you know whoever, and call them in. I mean, the other reason 
it's, I don't know if it's less of a threat as that you're checking two boxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a twofer. Yeah. That's, I'm totally twofer. Um, I was upset. I'm sorry. I was upset once because I got beat up uh, on a job by a friend of mine who was a threefer. She was a <laughs> black woman and gay, and I was like, damn it. <laughs> she got me. <laughs> you know, it, as staffs get smaller, right? I mean, staffs keep getting smaller. So um, to, have, to have representation for, you know, you hope that the, that the characters on the show, there's more diversity, that maybe you have... LGBTQ characters and you've, you know, you've got, by, and, but you can hire six writers you know, and <laughs> it gets to be tricky. Um, but, and, and right now you're right because of the, because people are waking up to this, a lot of people are working, right? So, um, so how, I wonder what you think of, I've been seeing a lot on Twitter, a lot of white, writers reaching out on Twitter saying, I'll read your, you know, writers of color, send me your scripts. Um, I'll read your stuff. I'll give you notes. Um, what do you guys think of that? I mean, I think it's good. I mean, any help is, is good. If it's, if it's sincere, I think it's, it's a good thing. Um, you know, cause it's, this business is hard to break into for everybody. It's just like, triple hard for us, but it's hard. It's not an easy business, you know? So it's like, if people are willing to read you, which is, which, you know, when I was trying to break in, I couldn't get anybody to read my scripts until I became a PA and was in their face every day. And they would feel embarrassed to say they didn't read my script. They wouldn't read it. So I feel like the best way is let a bunch of, hire a bunch of PAs, uh, diverse PAs and, and writer's assistants and listen to them and read their scripts. And over time, you will start hiring people because you will stop looking at like the superficial stuff and you will look at, oh, this is a good script or this is a bad script. So I, I think that's what it is. But I, I, you know, with the whole George Floyd thing and what's happening is we're in a pandemic, so we're on a, a house watching this stuff depressed it's causing some soul searching and making us go was i doing everything right or wrong or what can i do more and every profession i think is is going through this so it's good that it's happening in our business you know um that people are are open to hear and now that it seems like hey they really want to hear what you have to say and hopefully it, it, it stays that way. And it's not just like a fad or not, but you know, I think it's good. I, I, you know, I, I'm not the guy that's like, Oh, you're a Johnny come ladder to me. You know? So that it's, it's, we just want to make things better. We know they were, we look in the past, we're going to be mad all the time. So we look in at the past to inform what we do in the future. And I feel like, Cause I've seen those things on Twitter, like, Hey, send me a script. And you know, if you're, it doesn't matter what level you're at and that kind of thing. The writer's guild is doing stuff with that as well. Like trying to help because we're not with our agents anymore, you know, trying to help 
I'm optimistic about the whole thing. I really am. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not delusional, but I'm optimistic that things are getting better. What do you think the executive ranks, the part that that plays, and have you seen more diversity in terms of the executives? Because I think that's a huge part of this puzzle. You know, having been someone who's been a showrunner and dealt with these people and heard how they speak, you know, I've seen really often it's like, the last thing you have to do, you staff your show, and then the last box you check is just the check your diversity box at the end. And that's the attitude that existed from the largely, almost overwhelmingly white executive ranks for so long. It's like, we got to do this, you know, and it's free. You get a free writer through these diversity programs. That's the last thing you do, and then you're, you're good to go. And I think so much of these staffing decisions are influenced by who the executives are. And so we can talk a lot about diversifying these writer's rooms, but that's also a piece. And I'm just wondering if you've, if you've noticed change on that level. Yeah. I, and I think they should uh, start to help with finding these people. I mean, I've seen the execs become <laughs> unfortunately younger than me now <laughs> and more diverse. But I think, you know, they take a lot of these general meetings because I don't want it to fall on showrunners. Oh, just hire this person and this person is not a good writer. You know, if they're going to tell showrunners, you know, we got these great people I want you to meet. They should also be great writers and not just look at your numbers. OK, I got three black women, four Latina women. And here we want the show to look like this. You know, they, they also have to be good writers. And I think they execs and networks and studios have the opportunity to open up these programs, go to schools and high schools. Look, I grew up in Compton, like Matt said, nobody, nobody ever told me I could do this. Nobody came down and said, you could write TV for a living. I just saw the Brady Bunch on TV and I assumed white people wrote it. I, this was white people's project and we were just blessed to have it come out over our TV. You know, it was a mystery. It was like, you know, the guy behind the curtain. You didn't know who did that. So when kids don't know what they can be, how do they ever get there? You know, the numbers get smaller and smaller. And the few who do think, oh, I can do this because people do this. But then they get there and the door is shut because the people who do this don't look like you. I think execs have to be a branch or a, a road for people to get in. They have to be the ones to extend themselves. And then you get more creative shows and more diverse staffs. And also, this is a business where you fail up. Give the people who are already there, the senior people who are already there, a chance to fail on a show. They shoot so many pilots a year. The majority of those don't get picked up. But we don't get a majority of those chances either. They keep going to the same people over. You keep recycling it. And people live for a long time in this business on failed deals. You know, give us a chance to fail up. You know, if you can't even get a sale, then you don't even get to play in that ballpark. Because once you're in there, you keep, you know, they keep coming back to you. And I think that's where the execs have to open it up a bit. You know, I think there's talent out there. You know, again, Insecure, Issa had to prove herself on her own on YouTube. 
you know, they have to put it up there, which is an avenue for people. I, thank God we have it. But you also have people just sitting there with specs and scripts and samples. You know, spend some money on them as well. Yeah, it's, you know, I think I said this in the email to you guys, but it's just like, why have, you know, why haven't we done a single script on Dead Pilot Society by a black writer? And, and I will, you know, I said part of it is the way this, this show works is a lot of my network and my network's network. And, you know, but, uh, but part of it is they're just, there haven't been that many black writers who have gotten the shot to get a dead pilot, you know, to, to have it be dead, you have to have sold it, you know, and um, that, you know, historically hasn't happened that often. I mean, it's, it's interesting you bring up Issa cause I, uh, I'm sure she's not going to listen to this, but like I read her ABC pilot um, and it's not great, but she had, you know, and she might've, you know, it might've ended there cause it might not have, you know, you might've not gotten another chance and look, she did she get another network chance? No, but she went on YouTube and now she's got this, this great show, but those abilities to fail and keep going where I, I, I have to assume a white writer gets many more chances to fail and will take another chance on you. Whereas I'm sure it's been, well, you know, and I'm sure it's been, well, we tried this one black pilot writer or your pilot and that didn't work. So I don't going to do any more of those. <laughs> like it's, you know, it becomes not this individual maybe didn't deliver. It becomes like, okay, we tried this, this population of people and it didn't work out, which would never be the case, obviously with a white writer, you know, having a pilot that didn't work. Um, but there's so much catching up. It's what you're saying. You've got to be able to move through the ranks to get to the point where you're selling pilots. And, um, and on the, I'm sorry, on the other side of that, you know, like, yeah, Kenya pitched and failed a bunch of times. But once they get Shonda and Kenya and then they stop looking is another, you know, like, well, we already got two black showrunners, you know, we don't, they just stop looking for more stuff, you know, and I'm not pointing the finger at ABC, but it always feels like that, you know, like there's a limit of black people in charge of stuff. And once they reach that number, they stop looking for you. You know, we, we got Kenya, we don't, we're good, you know? We'll just keep, we'll just keep giving Kenya more shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> He's tried and true. He lucked out. He didn't luck out. He gave you a great show and people watched it, but he got the chance to do that. And he had to go through a hell of a lot of pitches just to get that one show off the air. So, you know, I'm just given an opportunity. I think uh, the landscape could look a lot better. And I think it's going to happen. Hopefully it'll happen because there's so many platforms. If we can't get chances to get our shows up now, then you're just not checking for us. You just don't want to make us rich. Right. <laughs> right. I, I always think that sports to me is the, the fairest thing in society and the world, especially track and field. If you run the hundred yard dash, there's nothing fairer than the hundred yard dash. You're <laughs> just faster than the other person. I feel like if writing and entertainment or whatever was like sports, there would be more black people in it because it would just be on the merit. Um, but we all know that it's so many different factors involved just to get the lowest level. I needed to know somebody that was a PA that vouched for me 
to get the job getting the lunch for people. So that's just how this business is. So I just feel like you j- just give as many people at the bottom a chance, you know, but how do they get, how do you even get a PA job? Like, do you send your resume? Like, I, I don't even know how you get that other than knowing somebody. So if they had a program that was like, we're programmed to get PAs on shows, I think, and they read people's scripts at that level. I think more, if you look five, 10 years from now, a lot of those people will be thriving and doing well and having careers, but you have to get in and it's hard to get in because it's the, this gate, it's the gatekeeper and it's years and years and you're, and you're, a, you're, you're a great guy. You know what I mean? You're, you're a great guy. So just think of the people that aren't great, that do, do have racist tendencies. How hard is it going to be to get on their shows? You're a guy that's like, you want diversity and inclusion, but you don't know the people. So when you're putting together a dead pilot society, you're like, who do I go to? You, you, you don't want to spend all day reading hundreds of scripts. You just want to go, okay, you sent me your script or my friend, I know his script is dead. Let me put him on here. And that's, and that's what happens. And so that's what we have to, to break. You know, I, I wouldn't even, I, another one of my scripts didn't ended up being dead, but I didn't even send it to you because I didn't, I didn't feel like I felt like the guy that I wrote the script with that I sent to you was a big enough white writer that you would care. <laughs> I felt like <laughs> I felt like I needed to have a white left tackle block for me that was big enough <laughs> that can open a hole so I can go through it. But the other script, I was like, eh, I don't know if you, you know. Because it seems like you only chose big writers for, for Dead Pilot Society. So I was like, I'm not big enough, but this guy is big enough. So maybe you'll, you'll let me in because of this guy. So that, that was a thing, you know, and it could totally not be true, but that's what I was thinking. It's so funny because I'm actually right now trying to remember who, like, I think of that script as your script and I'm trying to even remember who you wrote it with. I swear to God, like, it yeah. was not, that was... I will admit, yeah, when we do these, you're trying to get people to click on that pilot because it's like, oh, Adam McKay wrote this yes. or John Hodgman or Genji Cohen or Will Gluck or, you know, so and that makes the whole podcast bigger. You have every the world is based on names. Yep. Nobody goes, let's let's do something with all unknown people. No, they want names because it's so hard to break through and get people's attention. So I get it. And I've been to Dead Pilot Society more than one time, the taping of it. And it's always been the Adam McKay's and people that I was like, wow, you got the, you know, so I didn't feel like my little thing. But Michael Price, who been on The Simpsons for 20 years, who co-created F is for Family and who's been around and who's great. I thought, oh, with Michael, I'm definitely in there because he's so big. You know what I mean? That's so so funny, Matt. I don't know who, I didn't know who Michael Price was. I swear <laughs> to God. Um, but you know, it's, uh, there's not that many big names. It's just like, you know, I've look, I've been trying to get Larry Wilmore to give me a script. That's a few, there, there's, there's the few big names out there, but there, there aren't that many. It's part of this, this, this whole 
thing. And, and I even feel, you know, we, we really try in terms of the actors and we do much better in terms of the casts, but you know, I've been, there've been a million writers who've been like, can we get Damon Wayans Jr.? And it's just like, I even felt bad, Allison, when I was just like, could you ask, you know, Damon, but it's just like, he's not in my, I didn't work on any shows with him. He's not in my network. You know, I, um, but, uh, you know, these, the, the, the thing about PAs, which is right, you, you need those entry-level jobs. And the way that often works is, say you're a writer and you get uh, word, hey, your pilot's going, you, you know, you get to hire an assistant because you're getting to make a pilot. You got to hire that assistant that week, you know, and right. you're just like looking anywhere. Give me someone, give me resumes of someone who I could hire. And that might be... You know, the studio might send you someone, but your friend might be. And there's no telling when that opportunity is going to turn up. You know, it happens at all different times. And you're right. There has to be a program that is built like a rapid response. Those, okay, this is happening. We can, we're going to get these resumes in. And there should be a Rooney rule where you're not just meeting people from your Ivy League alma mater, you know, a bunch of other, you know, white kids because that's who your network is sending you it has to be at that moment because you get that pa job then someone will read your script and you're in the door um and you know i i think you know when i think too about all about the washingtons what no one ever talks about like that when we were on that stage and we really put an effort into at every level having diversity in that crew and every you know that that was the greatest vibe on the set. It was awesome. Like we had just such, all that diversity made it so great. And I remember thinking, I haven't had a chance to run a show since then, but like Michelle Cole, who was our, who did wardrobe, right? Our, you know, is so amazing. She's so good. Her team was so good, right? And what does she do? Blackish grownish all about the washingtons and i thought like if if i ever have a show that is not predominantly a black cast that maybe is more you know i'd hopefully never do a show that's an all-white cast but that's maybe more of a white cast i was like i'm gonna hire michelle for this show because it's one thing where it's just like oh we got the black show michelle does the black shows but michelle should be getting hired not just on the black shows. And that's still like, it's going on at that level too. Um, Michelle's amazing. Can I tell you something too? At our rap party, this has never happened to me before, but women from those departments from wardrobe and makeup came up to me and they said, I just wanted to tell you watching you work was amazing. And I was like, what did I do? She said, girl, and a couple of them. (laughs) I was like, Made me blush a bit, but it, they said you would tell the white man a yeah. no or give him something, he would listen to you and do it. I've never seen that before. They've never seen a black person sit that close to the white man in charge and actually talk to him. And I was thinking, how fucked up is that? You know, I'm doing my job and I'm going on about my career and whatever, and not realizing that other people are watching. And some of them were younger women and some of them were older, but it happened more than once. It happened on stage. And I was like, wow, is it that scarce? 
you know, they had never seen a black person in that close of contact with the head guy. And that to me said a lot because your crews are quietly collecting information on from every show they do, you know, and they made a point of mentioning that. And it, it affected me. Now, if it was an all black show, sure, they'd seen it. But like you said, we had that mix and that flow and everybody going and it was something new to them. And that it fucked me up a little bit. Like, this is what year did we do that show? <laughs> yeah, it was not long ago. Yeah. <laughs> Three years ago, so you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's crazy, right? And um, you know, and there's a moment happening right now, but and you hope it is sustained. Um, but there's there's it, catching up. You keep saying it's just like there's so much catching up, you know, and it's at every level. And until it happens at every level, it's hard for it to really happen. Um, until it's like the PAs and the executives and the assistants to the executives and, you know, that it's not just looking at statistics of these writers rooms. Cause that, you know, that's one thing, but it's just like the pipeline and the networks, you know, and it's still the case if I was staffing a show today, like I, I certainly know a few more black writers that, that would be possibilities, but I still don't know that many. And, um, and 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 I think there's still too many places where black kids don't even think about this as a possibility uh, for a job. Yeah, right. right. It's not just nobody came to talk to me, but once I realized that, I did a couple of volunteer events uh, with the Junior Red Cross and stuff like that, career days and stuff, and it amazed me. For one. I would go and set up and I would take my posters and stuff because I know kids don't believe everything you say. I, I, I thought being a writer might be boring to them. So I wanted to make it a little more exciting, but it amazed me how many young girls and women that were there who kind of whispered to me, I'm a writer, but I don't know what to do with it. And I've never told anybody. It was sort of like a secret thing. And then the other ones who were like, you can seriously make money. Like I could do this for my living. Like they just didn't know. It wasn't even how do I do it? They didn't know it was possible. You know, that's something you hear about on TV and TV is not real. Again, there has to be more outreach. You know, there has to be amongst writers. Um, I did SCAD where I met Marta. Um, right, tell us, tell people what that is and who Marta is. SCAD, Marta, <laughs> Kaufman, right? Marta, yeah. Marta <laughs> Kaufman, co-creator of Friends, yeah. One of the creators of Friends. And I did a panel that has experience. And she talked about Friends. SCAD is in Georgia. So one lady had to call her on, oh, you ripped off Living Single. And Marta just straight told her, no, I did the show I wanted to do. It didn't have anything to do with Living. You know, she went by that controversy that's always been there with ease. She just told her truth and kept going. And it was really interesting because I feel like as a writer, you, you're always learning. And like Matt said, he went to learn the rock. I like to learn from people and get their experiences and just soak it all up. So after her panel, uh, we were talking and she said, let's go to dinner. And we met in the hotel that night and had dinner. And 
it was really nice. It was good to get to know her and break down that, ooh, she's the creator of a hit show. And just, you know, just she's another, she was another woman. We had drinks and we talked and we ate and it was good, you know. Um, but I think there's not enough of that happening in this industry where, you know, people get put up on a pedestal. And if you don't know them, you think they're better than you, or they write better than you, or their process is different. And that's why I'm still down here. And the truth of it is, if you're in this business and you're still down here, it's just because you haven't gotten the shots they've gotten. That's all there is to it. Like you said, you don't find a lot of dead pilots by black people. But I have read friends' um, scripts and my friend's scripts and their pilots that they're going out to sell. And a lot of them are really good. And a lot of them don't get past just them writing them at home or past their agents. So you just need that opportunity because we're all out here trying. It's just, and if we wait on them to, they, we can't fall for the, okay, we'll start bringing in more PAs and black people. Yeah, do that too. Yep. Do that as well. But also use the resources that you have right there. You have somebody who's been a co-EP for six years or somebody who's about to be a co-EP, but has been in 10 rooms. Those people have experience. Buy a show from them, even if you don't get it. You know, Larry Wilmore, I, I'm sure helped Issa a lot to get Insecure on, but Insecure was then and still is her voice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just a voice you're not used to. You know, and we need more of that because you'll, you'll, Fuck around, live in your truth, and find a bunch of people who relate. You know, they have to take the stigma off. You know, I've been for years thinking about a show with older women. They're not going to buy that for me. They didn't buy that for me. But Marta has friends in her background and a lot of experience. She's got two of the oldest women in the world on her show. <laughs> you know, and it's a good show. So it just, it's where they go to get it and what they feel like they can relate to. What a, here's a tough one. So because show business and writing is in a sense, a zero sum game in a way, right? There's so many, there's only so many spots. Yep. I hear sometimes from white writer friends, older, you know, whatever guys in their forties, fifties, um, you know, they're just like, it's going to, it's going to be impossible for me to get hired now. Like no, you know, for now it's changing. And, you know, for a white guy, you know, co-EP supervising level, you know, or certainly lower level, like those, you know, the shows are, uh, you know, staffs are smaller and people want all this diversity. Like I, you know, I'm never going to be able to get a job again. Um, and look, you know, I think these are, I have my response, you know, that I say to those guys, because I also, I'm, a, I'm just curious, like, if you heard that, you know, what, what's your response? Who fucking who? You know, they can say that, but I also have eyes. And I've been in more rooms and more meetings where people look like you more than they look like me. Yeah, it's scary. But you know what? It's scary only if you're threatened. 
You know, if you're if you're afraid that they're not just going to take your job because they're of another race or they're black, but they're also as talented, that's a whole different thing. Step your game up. Because when we talk about, you know, hiring and Matt mentioned affirmative action. I got a job years ago on affirmative action, but guess what? I still had to pass the interview. I still had to pass the typing test. I still had to pass what other tests to work at Cal State Long Beach. Affirmative action was only so they would accept my application and give me the interview. You know, so I, I cannot feel sorry for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think, I don't know a white guy that's really killing it that's not going to get work. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I think that's people that didn't have to kill it. And now other people are taking the non-killing it job. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, if you're really, if you are white, a white male and you are Michael Jordan, nah, you're always going to have work. You're <laughs> always going to, why wouldn't you? It's just, now you 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 have to step your game up because other people are coming in, and if and if you're on the same level, they're going to hire the person that's going to cost less and make them look good because it's diverse. So that's the whole thing. And if you've been in the game that long, you really should have your own show. You really should. If you've been in the game twenty years, like you know, it's like sports, like, like they're not just going to keep a slot on the Lakers open for you. Cause you've been here. No, <laughs> it's like every training camp, you got to lace them up like everybody else and whoever the best gets the job. That's how I feel it should be. I don't think, I think at the lowest levels, PA writers, assistants, assistants give opportunities to people that normally don't get it. But I don't think like Allison, I would want good writers. I don't want just somebody that's black. That don't mean that that does nothing for you. You're going to end up having to write this person's script. So you want people that are competent, that's bringing something to the table. We all want that. We just want, if we're doing that at a high level, to get work. That, that's, that's all we have, especially if it's a ma majority black cast, where it's like, okay, I've been on a show where it's like three black males i'm the only black male writer on the show and it's three black males on the cast and it was still like i'm not gonna get this gig like because I, I was like a, a freelance and they were gonna pick between me and some other people and it was like okay I, i'm not gonna get this gig not because i'm not qualified good and killing it but because there's somebody else vying for the position that's connected by family. And that's, and I knew that. So it was like, you know what? I'm not going to get this. So let me just have fun freelancing the script and keep it moving because I can't beat this person's dad worked on cheers. I can't <laughs> beat that. Right. So just give me my check and I'm out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if you read the trades, they're not going without work. No. You go through the trades. I mean, they will make room or the people they're used to working with. They will create jobs. They will, they will give them deals. They'll buy their script. That, you know, that's not the thing. And, it's, and you can't blame that on minorities. You can't blame that on black, more black writers coming in. Because, you know, there's a push for more women, too, recently. Yeah. So, you know, that was back when the room I was in was really threatened because um, 
um, the women were getting work. And specifically, our writer's assistant, who was a woman, got a job on a great show. And these men were offended. <laughs> like, offended. <laughs> I'm like, dude, step your game up. Because I don't feel bad at all. I don't. Yeah, it's like, sorry you don't get to coast. <laughs> but but if you look at the WGA statistics, most of the jobs are going to white guys in their 40s. Yes. And I think there's just that thing that white people do. I, I, and I think someone asked me, you know, I think I thought my high school was like 40, 50% black. And someone's like, no, I think it was like 15%. And it was, <laughs> And it's just that perception thing where if you're white, you see like, oh, there's two, you know, there's two black guys. There's like a majority you know, of like black people in the room here. Now, there's only two, but that feels like way more to you. And that's the issue black people go through. All of, we're only 13 percent of America. <laughs> like we're not even represented that largely in most states in America. So how can we be that big of a problem? <laughs> you know, it's like it's like we're 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 seventy percent of the problem, and only thirteen percent. Most of you ain't even around us. Like, how are we your problem? So that's that that's what I always say. Is it's like how Tamir Rice, who was twelve, I think, seemed like he was thirty. We're always seen as bigger than who we are, older than who we are, louder than who we are, and it's it's not the case. It's just perception. And like you said, if you hire two people, it seems like oh. Half of the people were black. No, they weren't. It was like two black guys, you know, but you can, if, if, you know, I forget the quote. It's like, I forget it. And I hate this because I did this with my wife the other day. I was like, like Dr. Dre said, I forget what he said. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like when, when equality, when equality, when you're used to everything and you have to give a little bit up, it seems like oppression. I forget that quote, but it's, right. it's, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, Allison? You know the quote, the real quote? <laughs> I, I did until you said it, but it's something like when you have to something, equality feels like oppression. Yeah. Yeah. But to that, my friend Devon does this thing. Whenever he starts a new room, uh, the first day he asks, uh, how tall do you think I am? And they always say six foot, six foot two or whatever. Um, you know, this one guy says six foot three, just every room. He's maybe 5'10". But when he walks in the room as a dark-skinned black man, they see him as bigger than who he is. He's always perceived as a threat. No matter how much of a gentleman he is, no matter how much he jokes and laughs, he's always perceived as a threat. Like Rodney Barnes, who is six oh, yeah. feet six, he is a big guy, but he has to play himself small as a writer because he... he People feel threatened with him around. And it's only what's in your head. It's what's, what you've been programmed to think. You know, black is bad. Black is the bad guy. So Right. Right. It's like when I used to live on like, uh, like Wilshire La Brea and I would jog at night and I would encounter a white girl jogging. I would get more scared. I'm sure 10 times more scared <laughs> than she was of me. And I would take out my phone and just have fake conversations to make her feel comfortable. Like, hey, yo, no, no, uh, buy, buy on three. Like, I, I don't even know stocks. I just act like I was buying stocks on the phone. So she would go, oh, this is a black guy buying stocks. He's not going to kill me. 
<laughs> because black people don't want to scare you. You know what I mean? Unless they're a boxer. Like, I don't know any black people that are around white people that want to be intimidating. We want to be, be nice enough that you keep us around. Like you said, Rodney is such a big guy, but he speaks so softly and he, he walks like he, he does things to where it's like, I'm not making any false moves. <laughs> and it's and it's a thing. We have to think about it all the time because we are perceived as a threat and, I, and we don't want to be threat. We're writers. It's like the bird watcher. Like that guy, he's not going to fuck with anybody. Like, why are you calling the cops on him? He's the most docile. But because, you know, people think this, I feel the need to, like, make people feel comfortable around me. So it's like if I have to talk, if I have to smile more, if I have to, if I have to even act like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, be flamboyant. I don't know what I, whatever I have to do to make people feel like, oh, this guy is not going to beat my ass. I'm going to do it. So people <laughs> don't want to fire me or feel like, oh, this guy is, is threatening. He's not making people feel comfortable. <laughs> it's messed up because you have the right to be passionate about uh, something, especially with what we do. You have the right to be passionate about a character or a story and really express how you feel. And like you said, a twofer, sometimes I'm shut down because I'm a woman. <laughs> not because I'm black. They just want the woman to shut up. <laughs> they should at least specify why they're shutting you down. In this instance, I'm shutting you down because you're a woman. But uh, yes. so we should, we, we're going to have to wrap up here, but I'm just wondering for, cause this is a moment where like suddenly, you know, every well-meaning white person is like, I can't tell you if I have to see, I gotta say, if I have to see another reading list that gets sent to me, uh, it's just like, I know, I know the books are like, please don't send me another, another anti-racism reading list. I got the list. I'm good. But it's a time where everyone wants to be doing something. So if, you know, we talked a little bit about the people reaching out on Twitter, saying, hey, I'll read your stuff. I mean, is there anything else, you know, white writers listening to this wants to be whatever word you want to use, an ally, anti-racist, anything that, that you think people can be doing? Not that I'm looking to you guys to have an answer to this necessarily, but just if, any last parting thoughts? Um, I think hiring, reading, and recommending are good. You know, there's so many tips you can give people. I just want to give you the advice that at a certain point, you're going to get exhausted. It's going to get tiring and it's going to be frustrating and feel like, am I, if what I'm, is what I'm doing any good? Get used to that because we're tired too. And tired is just a part of it. After you read every book, after you've donated to every charity, after you've recommended so many writers uh, for a show. Yeah, that's just the gig. Being tired is a part of it. Do what you have to do, recharge your batteries and get back in the fight. Because it's gonna take, you know, they were talking this morning during the funeral or around the funeral about how long it took after Rosa Parks got off that bus. You know, these things take years. 
or got on that bus rather. These things take years. They don't happen overnight. They don't have they don't happen by Christmas. You know, it's gonna take a while. So when you get tired, you know, fuel up and get back in the game. Because that's yeah. how we feel all the time. Right, right. And I feel like um invite us to the parties and come to our parties. Like, like, cause I think if we socialize with each other more, we would break down so many different things. Like I want to be invited to the Hanukkah party. I want to be invited to the Christmas party. I want to be invited just to come and I'm gonna chill and have a good time and drink eggnog, talk shit like everybody else. And I want you to come. If we just do that and keep up with each other, I like how you send me the political stuff. You know, Franco hit me up with a text and just just a joke or something like that. Um, you keep those ties because then it's like if you work on a show, but you hadn't worked on it in a while, if you lose the tie, it's like that disappears. And that work that was done, that relationship that was made disappears. I feel like we all have to do the work to keep the relationships that we make together so we can keep them and extend them. because you don't want to do this work and then it just goes away. So that's my thing is like, you don't have to do March for 20 miles. And that's not going to be everybody's thing. That's going to be some people's thing, but just the little thing like, Oh, you had a baby, you know, congrats, like that kind of thing that keeps us together. And, and over time, we'll know who the good writers are. We, we all know when the script comes in and it's like, okay, we don't have to stay two nights till two in the morning with this script. We know who, who they are. So it's like, let's just keep that going. You know, simple. Yeah. All right. It was so good talking to you guys. You too. You too. Hey, uh, I've missed being in the room with you guys. You're awesome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having us. It, it's, it's like, hey, you know, uh, are you on the Friends reboot? <laughs> like, <laughs> I love to write for Phoebe, if you are. <laughs> I'm just playing. You guys, be safe and take care and see you post-COVID. Yes, yep. hopefully sooner rather than later. All right, take care, you guys. All Thank right. you. Thanks. You're welcome. That's our show for this month. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host, Ben Blacker, and our associate producer, Noah Finling. I really hope you can join us for our live stream show this Saturday, June 20th, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Go to houseseats.live for tickets. Houseseats.live. Only $6.50. Proceeds go to the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. We're going to keep doing more of these, so follow us on social social media to find out when. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at Dead Pilots Society. All right, everybody stay safe out there. Find a way to help someone. Be nice to yourself and wear your fucking mask. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich.
Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. <laughs> In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a brand new podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback is three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Schreier. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye!